Ultrasound Gel Podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Ultrasound Gel Podcast. I'm Mike Pratz and today I am joined by my good friends Jay Avila, Cray Bolger, and a couple special guests. Now before we get to our guests, Cray and Jay, how are you two doing today? Mike, I'm doing all right. I'm excited that we're talking about this topic and excited to see you guys. I haven't seen you in, I feel like, two months. I know. It's been too long. It's been too long. It has been too long. But for sure, today we have a real treat. We are doing a special edition diversity podcast, and I'm really excited about our guest that we have with us today. We have Dr. Almaz Desi, who is the Fellowship Director for Pediatric Emergency Ultrasound at Brown University, Hasbro Children's Hospital, in Rhode Island Hospital. How you doing, Almas? I'm doing great this morning. Thanks for having me. Yes, welcome to the show. And also we have Dr. Javier Rosario, Director of Emergency Ultrasound and Emergency Ultrasound Fellowship Director at University of Central Florida, HCA, Florida, Osceola Hospital. Javi, how are you? Good morning. I'm great. I'm, thank you for having me here too. Good morning. Well, today we are going to discuss a lot of different things related to diversity. And the reason that this came up is some brilliant articles that were published by these two authors and physicians. And I would just love to start off with a quote from one of these articles that I think really exemplifies what we hope to accomplish or at least attempt. And this quote is that the articles and this whole topic, the aim is to amplify the voices of the unheard and direct our focus to our blind spots in order to better serve our communities and better support each other as colleagues. So we're going to do our best. Cray, why don't you walk us through what are the articles we're going to talk about? Thanks, Mike. So the two articles we're going to discuss today, the first one where Javi is the lead author is Creating a More Racial, Ethnic, Inclusive Clinical Ultrasound Community. And this was published in April 2022 in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, discussing kind of how coronavirus really amplified some of the issues of racism in our healthcare community and then kind of how that expands and affects who we are as an ultrasound community and can affect the patient care we provide and the education we provide. And the second article where Dr. Desi is our lead author is The State of Gender Inclusion in the Point of Care Ultrasound Community, also featured in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in June of 2022. Javi, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how the idea came about for your article on racial and ethnic inclusivity in the ultrasound community. You know, the the idea of the article came from a, a group of friends of the show. And uh, we we were discussing the importance of discrepancy that we were noticing at the time during the COVID-19 pandemic and how that related as well to the clinical ultrasound community and the lack of diversity that we noted within the leaders of the community. You know, that's how the conversation essentially got started. And from there, we, we were able to collaborate with a lot of other important authors of, of each of the papers. And I got to meet Almas and work directly with her on this project, which was very important, I want to say, for for everyone in the article, but very important for me and and for um, Almas as well. How did you go about turning it into a paper? And I guess, what was the aim of that paper? Yeah, I mean, turning all these thoughts into something that you could read and paper that was substantial, for me, was specifically very tough because you have a lot of things in your mind and and you want to get a message out there. And it's sometimes hard to condense that into a paper that people want to read and information that people can take home. So for me, it was more 
focusing on what I feel is really important for us to make a change is uh, recruitment. So the focus of my paper has a lot to do with how we recruit and the changes we can make in our community to to improve our recruitment and retention. I'll add also that I just want to give some credit that really the orchestrators of these two papers were Risa Lewis out of Thomas Jefferson and Lori Stoltz out of Cincinnati, friends of the show, I'm sure, friends of all of us. And they really helped kind of assemble these author groups to organize these two papers. And they also, I think, in in talking about what these papers sort of demonstrate, you know, gave a wonderful writing opportunity to me and to Javier as people of color in the Ultrasound community, me as a woman, to be first authors on this pretty impactful project or two projects. So I want to give them some credit for that and say, you know, they really demonstrated kind of what we're talking about in terms of sharing opportunities. 100% agree with that. It's definitely something to be celebrated that this article, the publication and the work that went into this is a good example of what we hope other things will follow. Yeah, I agree, Mick. I think the cast of both author list is quite impressive and inclusive and I think is really demonstrating the need for sponsorship and mentorship that is not just those you are friends with who are like you, but that we're really mindful in our choices when collaborating. So Javi, in terms of if you're able to briefly summarize this article, anything you want to highlight from some of the findings or the things that were written in by this author group? Yeah, I think the article really emphasizes the underrepresentation of minorities across medicine and specifically emergency medicine. And some of the numbers here are the fact that about 30% of the United States population is comprised of underrepresented minorities. And we really lack that comparison in, in medicine overall, you know, and that's even less seen in the in the academic ranks. The paper really focuses on those numbers and the fact that our current clinical ultrasound community doesn't really have any data collected and how we can improve and how we can start collecting some of this data and start moving towards change. I really liked how both of you and all of the authors collectively are, are bringing this to our specific community. I mean, it's, it's very easy to see some of the the motion that's ongoing with regard to racial and, and gender equality, but it is uh, nice to also look at our own community in which we interact constantly and we see each other all the time and think, how does this apply to us? And some of those statistics are very staggering and concerning, obviously. So it's good to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, here's where we are with our current groups and our structures and, and see that there is a problem here too. Definitely. I believe that that's where we can start impacting and creating change when we have some of those numbers that we can compare ourselves to and when we can do improvements in recruitment and retention to start moving that needle towards change. Yeah, I think it's very easy to say we're a POCUS fellowship or a POCUS division. There's only, we only have one fellow a year or you know we only have four faculty in our division. We're a small group. Like This sort of doesn't apply to us or the pool is too small or you know, I think there's those obvious sort of, I don't want to say excuses, but justifications for why the problem is what it is. But I really like that we did in these two papers is saying, you know, even if you have one fellow a year, there are things you can do to think about how to diversify your fellowship, how to diversify your your speaking groups, your writing groups, and so forth. So regardless of how small your group or your division or your little community is of your subspecialty, this applies to sort of everyone. And we can all kind of take a little ownership on that. 
That's a really good point, Amaz. And maybe that you can use as a transition to talk a little bit about the gender inclusion article. Sure. So for this article, we had a sneaking suspicion that among women leaders in emergency ultrasound, we really noticed that this was incredibly a male-dominated subspecialty in terms of leadership and visibility. But that is not something that had been documented before. And when we went to go look through sort of the available data in terms of national and institutional leadership for our sections in the various societies, in terms of major awards, landmark publications, research collaborations, and then even editorial boards of journals, and also industry collaborations. That was the other piece we really found, wow, this is so startlingly dominated by men across every domain, even the things that women traditionally sort of excel in, like education. And that is despite the fact that the first three people we know who did a traditional POCUS fellowship were women. And we thought that historical context and sort of the discrepancy between where this started and where we are now was was really surprising and, and alarming. And we went through some of those data that we had available in terms of who are the presidents of the various organizations, our chairs, our elected leadership, the awards that have been given out. All of those were disproportionately awarded to and given to men. And then we, we went through some suggestions, which are similar to some that Javier pointed out in his, in his paper in terms of how to address that. I also thought that historical perspective was really interesting because that's, that's not really a common narrative that it starts off with females and then it becomes dominated after that. It's often the case that it's you know always been that way. We got to get back to the roots, it sounds like. For sure. And I really like sort of promoting those three women and, you know, the start of our specialty. It's a young specialty. It's a special specialty. And, and historically, women were at, at the start of it and we continue to be tremendous leaders in it and, and deserve more recognition for that. Certainly agree with that. And when I look at all this data and then come to the workshops, go to the meetings, I see a lot of females there. And you're right, like people who are up there speaking, people who are in charge of stuff, not a whole lot of it there. And I know a lot of them personally. And I and I wonder what is the barrier to get them to go up there? And because I've worked with them on research projects, on posts, know their credentials, and they do a phenomenal job. And I think that the main barrier to getting more diversity in kind of like the higher rungs of at least ultrasound, if it should be all of medicine, is, I mean, it sounds silly, but it's just bringing them in to do it. My kind of way to solve this or fix this is to just start pushing to everything to be at minimum 50-50. And we try to do that with our conferences, the last two that we've had. We did Sound and Surf the past two years, we were 50-50 on those. And then uh, Castle Fest, we were made sure to do 50-50 and 50, and it's it's doable. It's not something that's like so unsurmountable that it's impossible to do. And it's those little things, I think, moving forward that... Hopefully we'll continue to make a difference and make this a uh, important thing, but something that hopefully in a few years is already a given and we're not struggling with it anymore. No, I, I love that you're doing that. I think, you know, having a diversity and inclusion mindset as part of your institutions or groups mission statement is really key to drive this change and making changes personally and, and the things that you lead or, or you have some power is really where we can uh, start moving towards this uh, most important change that we need to have. And it starts just with that, with some mentorship, inviting people to participate in a conference or just inviting them inviting them to speak with you, collaborating together, maybe doing a session that you normally do by yourself. I think it's great that we're just having this conversation because I think the two words that come to mind are access and awareness. 
You have to make it accessible to everyone, but you also have to be aware that maybe not everybody's at your table because you might look around and be like, this is a great group of people, but it is it everybody who needs to be at that table? And unless somebody at the table is asking that question, it's really hard to build and bring up your own chair. You're making the access even harder by not putting the people who need to be there there. So I think those two concepts of access and awareness that the table is doesn't look the way it needs to look. And these two papers really, I think, emphasize that are so important to that activation energy to have change happen. I love that idea. You know, I think that some of the criticism, at least I got for my article, included from a gender piece, a lot of people saying, well, women don't go up for these positions. Like women aren't running for chair of whatever or president of whatever. There's no women going up for that. And you're getting exactly at the idea here of women need to be invited in because they have traditionally not been in those leadership positions. And I think a lot of women don't imagine themselves necessarily in those leadership positions, but it takes someone you know, if my boss tells me to run for something, I'm much more likely to run for it than just coming out of my own my own idea of running for it. So I think that in invitation in invitation to the table, you know, encouraging your women faculty or your your URM faculty to go for these positions, to go for these boards and things like that is really, really important to be invited in. Do you know if there exists any kind of a mentor group? You mean like an organization that is made for mentorship of, of certain groups? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it needs to be like an organization but just like a list and here I'm willing to mentor somebody else. Actually, there is something along those lines. It's uh, currently being led by some of the ASAP leadership. I don't know if you're aware of the diversity initiatives that are available there, but there is a mentorship community there and you essentially get invited if you are, if you're interested to be a, in being a mentor. And it's mainly focused towards medical students in the field and how they can f- get mentorship from people that are diverse, either, you know, because they're Hispanic and things. So it's very specific. I, I, I'm actually part of that group. You can get really specific and down to the nitty gritty of is it location based? Is it based on color? Is it based on culture? And then they eventually match you with someone that meets similar criteria. Almaz, I didn't want to skate over something that you said earlier because I was actually a little surprised when you mentioned that there was some criticism to your article or some of the other articles. Is that something that came up with either of you afterwards? Did, was there some responses that were unfavorable? We don't have to get into it if you don't want. I'm just curious, actually. I'll say that when when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, I think most people are on board with those as concepts and most people are on board in academic medicine. I think when you talk about a historical perspective and the various organizations that we're a part of and the ways they have not lived up to those tenets of DE and I, you know, it's normal to be a little bit defensive of prior work and things like that. And I'm not criticizing any individuals in any way, but I think there's a normal response to be defensive, especially if you've built something, built an organization, you've built a section or things like that. So I was not surprised that there was some criticism to the articles because they're, you know, the articles are tough criticism of these organizations and these institutions as well. So it's a healthy dialogue, I think. And both articles touch on this, that you got to be able to talk about it and not be scared to talk about it. You got to be able to identify race. Like these are things that are sort of hidden a little bit and we have skirted around a bit, but you have to talk about the reality of who people are and what our makeup is and whether it's good or bad or whatever, what we want to change. You know, we have to know the reality of where we're at to, to set some goals moving forward. 
I think to kind of carry on from that is like this makes people have to have a lot of hard reflections with themselves, right? Like the organizations are probably not the ones necessarily getting as defensive as the individuals who are like everybody but not me. But if everybody has that mentality, then you probably have a blind spot you're unaware of in both the recommendations once we get down there. Like that was a big part is that self-assessment. Like what are my implicit bias? And just not saying, do I have any? I have them. What are they? Our organizations like will say DEI is important, but like we need to see that not just in they need to have DEI, but we and I need to have DEI as a mindset. It's not putting more work on the people who already don't have access, right? Like that's, I think, just saying just show up. Like that's mentality of if they just showed up, we'd give them a spot. Well, no, you have to like A, make them feel welcome, but B, pull them there. It's on those of us who have not been inclusive to start including, not those outside to find a way to break into the house of medicine or the house of ultrasound, right? Like we have to open the door for them, not expect them to find a open window to climb in. Definitely. And I, and I think some of the papers did highlight the fact that if we don't see ourselves reflected in the, in the leadership or in the community, it is actually deterrent for underrepresented uh, faculty to want to join. Sometimes it starts with that invitation. And once that, once that invitation is, let's say that you invite me to be a part of this group, then this may lead to someone else later wanting to be a part of this conversation and drives that conversation. Going over that same conversation we were just having in in terms of people feeling uncomfortable, both papers highlighted circumstances where not only individual individuals felt uncomfortable, but also institutions from time to time will feel uncomfortable Mm -hmm. once the conversation is shifted towards them. So if you highlight that your specific institution needs to change, that may sometimes not be seen lightly and, and you might actually get in trouble for that. And both papers highlight how that is also, you know, a struggle for for the community as well. Yeah, that's a really good point, Javi, because it's all about the cycle that has been perpetuated for a long time. And we have to do something sometimes dramatic to try to disrupt that and, and fix things now that it's been so embedded in the culture, whether that be, you know, medicine or, you know, society in general or ultrasound. Of course, it's going to be uncomfortable. Change is hard, but I think that it's a necessity that we've hopefully all of us have agreed agreed to at this point. When I think any discomfort, those who are thriving in the existing system feel, magnify that for the discomfort those who are trying to get into the system feel. Like your discomfort for change is much less, I guarantee, than those who need the change to be present for them to have a place, a role. I think that's just an important thing to think of is like, it might feel uncomfortable for you to like have to do something a little different or ask yourself the hard questions, but like you not doing that is causing amplified discomfort for others. Really good point. So Jay, I think there were some other questions that we had thought of. You mind uh, bringing those up? Yeah. Well, I wanted to comment on something that um, Harvey yeah. said, and that was that sometimes you just need a nidus, you know, and it stinks. But if you have a person there that can start kind of the process and be uncomfortable and have to kind of push and shove to get in there, that'll make the process probably a lot easier for the next person, assuming that that person, that first person actually brought in a different person. And that's important too. It, it, I think there'll be a point where it won't need that. But I think one of the things that we have to be very cognizant of is trying to bring up our own that, you know, that want to and that have the capacity to do whatever it is that we want to pull them into. But to actually do that, spend that little bit of extra time, talk with them, go eat dinner with them, call them on the phone, uh, make them feel welcome for them to 
to be in this new role that, you know, they probably really want to, but don't even know how to approach it. You know, you're really describing inclusion and belonging, right, Jay? So I think we often stop at the diversity piece. So if you get people in, I did it, check mark, like look at my data, 30% ERM, doing really well. You have to be able to support people who are different than you and help them build communities so they can thrive in your environment. I can tell you from experience, it's not fun to be the only black kid in the cafe at lunchtime. So it's important to be sensitive to kind of that concept. I think the diversity piece is more glorified and, and we can really work on that inclusion, retention and belonging piece because it's really a whole different game. And you have to have leaders who just are clued into that piece and that concept and the reality of the experience of being, you know, the only black kid in the cafeteria and not knowing what to wear to the dinner or whatever, for lack of a better analogy. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. So you're, you're talking about like bringing in plus maintaining. Am I if I'm understanding exactly. correctly. Yeah, that's totally correct. I mean, creating that culture to make sure that they're feeling welcome is is as important. That's a very good call. When I think kind of building off that, you can't make them do the work for themselves. And I think as we transition what our leadership looks like and what our communities look like, you can't burden those who have already like struggled to get to the table because their walk was longer and steeper with fixing all the problems, which I think happens a lot. They're like, now you're our person. And so you're going to be our go-to for all these things you have to tell us all how to be better and you have to fix all the problems because you're the person who's experienced the problems. And it's like, if somebody broke their leg, would you tell them to like keep walking the race and go fix everybody else's broken legs? Like you'd let them rest and you'd help them out. But instead we're like, no, no, run more, longer, faster, harder. And I think that's just where our mentality is. A lot of it, I think, is not from a place of malice, but a place of misunderstanding that it's not, you have to change who you are, not who they are. And they can't have to do all the work you have to do a lot of the work, you being like the institution as is. I think it's really important to kind of understand that concept because I think getting people to the table is one thing, but if as they leave because they're exhausted because there's nobody that looks like them, supports them, understands them. Yeah, I think going off of that, I think that brings that minority tax conversation into our discussion here where, you know, the the underrepresented are are tasked with that responsibility of leading the new diversity and inclusion efforts and and then they, they're just left alone to do that and not really giving any credit for the work that is getting done as well. And it's more of a community approach where we need to be helping in those efforts as well if we're not part of that community. I think something that too comes up in both of your discussions too is like there has to be value to this work. Our chairs need to value this. I think that's really like we as a community need to value this work so that those doing the work, I think of this like in academic medicine, like the teaching needs to have as much value as the NIH funded research paper. Otherwise, where do people put their time? They're not going to put it where there's not value. And so I think our DEI efforts have to carry that same weight and value for them to be respected and a natural, important part of our community. Absolutely. Certainly some institutions are definitely moving in that direction. You know, there are some medical schools that require contributions to DEI to get promoted the same way you have to write about your teaching or research or whatever. So there is some movement in that direction. I think at a minimum, if you have DEI roles, whether it's in an organization, institution or, or whatever, like those roles have to be compensated in some way, regardless of who who fill those roles. I mean, traditionally, they're filled by, you know, URM folks. And still, I see positions being advertised that director of diversity that don't come with significant buy down in academic institution. And that is just unacceptable. 
Okay, we're going to just pause the conversation there. We split this episode into two parts. The next half will be out in two weeks. In the meantime, you can check out the show notes with some resources from both parts at ultrasoundgel.org. Special thanks to our guests on this episode, Almaz and Javi. We get into a lot more on the next half, so make sure to tune in then. Until then, my friends, we will talk to you later. More. More. Gel. More. Pressure. More. Gel. More. Ultrasound gel. 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 G